Connect in Transforming Knowledge with Dr. Barbara Flores, where we will talk about educational issues, emotional intelligence, to bring our tools and alternative to the whole community to germinate a new consciousness. Super happy for our first English interview with Dr. Tanya Johnson. Our 40th episode of the second season titled Making a Different with Autistic Children. I am Dr. Barbara Flores, a specialist in educational leadership and emotional intelligence. Author of the book Educational Leadership and Emotional Intelligence in the Face of Social Crisis. Dr. Tanya Johnson is an associate professor at Bronx Community College, Bronx, New York, in the Education and Academic Literacy Department. Dr. Johnson began her career in education as a substitute teacher in the New York City Department of Education. After teaching fifth grade, Johnson became the teacher of technology for six years and developed that school's technology curriculum. She served as school principal at Merrick Academy Charter School, the first charter school in Queens, New York. Dr. Johnson has worked with families of children on the autism spectrum disorder since 2009. She holds a doctorate in teacher leadership and administration, Walden University, MS in supervision and administration, MS in Childhood Education, MS in Instructional Technology, STEM Certification, New York Institute of Technology. I am very happy and grateful that Dr. Tanya Johnson has accepted my invitation. Dr. Tanya Johnson, how are you today? I'm good, Dr. Flores. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I would like to tell everyone a story. When I was a high school teacher in Puerto Rico, I remember that a coworker had her son at school, and he is an autistic boy, extremely intelligent with extraordinary skills and abilities. And I remember that one day we were in a classroom. By the way, the bell had already run for them to go home. So we have some teachers, but few students. When suddenly this boy starts screaming and hitting a pencil on a piece of paper. Some students were surprised, but they handled it very well. However, One of the teachers tell me that he is autistic and I hope not to teach him. I told her, I would love to have him in my class because it would be a privilege and a challenge for me because I am going to learn from a child who is very intelligent. And at the same time, it will be a challenge for me because I am going to grow as a mother and as a professional. 
to be able to empathize and give me help and support to those fathers and mothers. As you well know, the professor was a specialist. Therefore, it is not the same what they teach us in the universities in the theory than to live it in the practice. What do you think of this story, Dr. Johnson? When I listen to this story, I agree that it's not what they tell us at the university. They don't train us to do this work. I don't even feel they train us to be teachers in the classroom. So dealing with any type of behaviors, it can be children with autism. It can be just typically developing children acting out in the classroom. I feel that when you're a teacher, you actually get on the job training and the way in which you respond to the behaviors of the children is where you actually get your most relevant experience. And the classroom on the college campuses is textbook. Children that are autistic are all different. Even if they're twins, they're different. So you're never going to be able to have a cookie cutter way of how you deal with them. It's not a one size fit all, it's one size fit most. And the way in which you apply behaviors in dealing with the children is very different because children respond differently to different adults. They respond differently to behavior management. Each child has to really be identified as their own individual person. And that's why they have the IEP as an individual education plan. And using an individual education plan, you're looking at that student as one student. And the way that you plan for that student is based on that student's needs and based on that student's abilities. And the one thing that we don't do in the classroom or that is often confused is instead of us tapping into children's strength, we always target the weakness. And if we target the strength a lot more than the weakness, we will see their ability as opposed to their disability. And that's where we fall short as educators. And that's the one thing that they don't teach in the classroom, looking at students' abilities and not their disabilities and tapping into their strengths and not their weaknesses. Because once you tap into their strengths, you motivate them. And in that motivation, they then want to target whatever their weakness is because you're, you've given them that confidence. So once they build that confidence, they're not afraid at that point. Yes, it's awesome, your explanation. <laughs> Every children is different. That is correct. Let's start. Dr. Johnson, you have been working with autistic children for years. What has been your biggest challenge and what has been your greatest satisfaction? Yes, I've been working with autistic children since 2009. One of my biggest challenges have been actually most recent, the behavior and actually seeing children and afraid that I can't deal with the behavior of children, particularly children that are nonverbal, children that don't give eye contact, children that have severe sensory issues, they seem to be the most challenging. And I remember interacting with one child most recently, last year, September, and I saw the child and I went to the home and I was just like, oh no, I can't come back. Like this child is it's super challenging for me. 
And it was something that happened overnight. And it was like, go back. Wow. Going back to the house. Yeah. I was just like, I can't work with this child. I was like, no way. I'm not used to children. This is difficult. The child didn't even look up. His head was down. He gave no eye contact. Wow. And, you know, I, I work with children that's, I would say, between 15 months old and three years old. So he was at the time two years old. And I was just like, he's not even looking. He's not even in the eye contact. He has his head down. How am I ever going to work with a child on the spectrum and or a child that is autistic? And I actually took on that challenge. And I remember just being so condescending to the mother and, and just trying to make her say, don't come back. But <laughs> <laughs> That voice tell you, you need to go back. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I ended up going back and wow, what a difference the child, I mean, the progress this child has made. And now the child transitions because when they turn three, they start to transition into school, which is called CPSE, which is the Committee of Preschools Special Education. And the mother's like, oh, but we don't want to lose you. And, you know, <laughs> that makes me feel really, really good. But I can tell you one of my greatest experiences, again, has been this year as well. And having a child that was nonverbal, but he was very compliant and he worked very well for the most part. And I remember his mother going to, because a lot of times they want confirmation that the child is actually autistic. So they tend to take the children to a developmental pediatrician and the mother came home to me and I remember talking to this mother and telling this mother and giving her tips and telling her what to do and telling her all of the things that she needed to do. And she used to cry, literally cry. Wow. And I was like, Oh, she's not going to want to see me the next day. So, <laughs> but it actually built her muscle and this kid was nonverbal. He exhibited so many sensory issues. He didn't want to eat certain foods. He wouldn't step on cracks on the sidewalk. I mean, it was really bad. He used to flap, he used to toe walk and he had absolutely no language. And I used to say to her, I said, well, you know, let's develop his receptive language because parents are under this impression that I just want my child to talk. And I said, no, you don't just want your child to talk. You want your child to have functional language. You develop functional language, receptive language, and the ability for the child to understand because, oh, a child can talk, but do they understand what they're saying? Do they know what they're saying? Do they know what they're responding to? And once I encouraged her to focus on the receptive language piece, she started to listen and she came home and she shared her experience with the developmental doctor. And that just it broke my heart because the developmental doctor told her, what are you here for? You just want me to confirm that he's autistic? Yeah, he's autistic. And here's the card and you need to call OPWDD, which is extended services that children get when they turn three years old. And she was just like, wow, she was so mean to me. She was so mean to me. Yeah. And seeing this child today, I mean, a 360 degree turnaround and the mother, he talks, he talks in complete sentences. He addresses me. Hi, Miss Tanya. He, you know, <laughs> I mean, this mother worked so hard with him. And I even said to her, you need to take him back to the developmental doctor just so that she can see him. And I do believe that he's going to end up in a general education classroom in kindergarten, possibly an integrated classroom when he goes to pre-K. But 
just an amazing kid. And that is the most beautiful thing that I've seen. And right now I'm writing a book and on um, children with autism Mm -hmm. and he's my character. Wow. It's really amazing and wonderful. Yeah. Wow. Congrats. Dr. Johnson, what is the difference in communication in children with autism and with their social skills? The difference in the communication with children with autism and their social skills. So children with autism, most of them very young don't talk. They don't have language. It's usually the lack of language that prompt them to actually get evaluated. If the children had the language, the parents wouldn't even look at all the other indicators that exist. They wouldn't look at the sensory issues. They wouldn't look at the toe walking. They wouldn't look at the repetitive behaviors. They wouldn't look at the flapping. The majority of parents that do get their children evaluated is because the children are not speaking. So if the children don't speak, they're calling to get them evaluated. And they say, oh, my child is not talking. He needs speech. And then once they get them evaluated, They send in a speech evaluator and they send in a special educator. And the special educator, like myself, is one to say, okay, you know, maybe there's some other things going on. We might recommend a psychological evaluation. So when you start talking to the parents, you start saying, well, what is the child doing? Does the child play with other children? No, he doesn't play with other children. He don't like to play with other children. We go in crowds. He goes, he cries, he screams, so we can't stay out. It impacts their social, their ability to socialize. That's one of the things that they don't do. They don't like to socialize with other children. They don't interact with other children. They get overwhelmed with crowds. It has a major impact on their social skills. So one of the things that therapists do when they come into the home is teach them socialization, teach them social skills, teach them how to respond to questions like, what's your name? Because as they grow older, that's going to be a question that they're going to be asked. What's your name? Mm-hmm. You know, so these are things that they have to learn and practice as they start to develop. What typically put children on the spectrum is their inability to socialize and communicate with others. Well, that's one of the indicators, but that, again, no eye contact, Yeah, those are the most important indicators. They just don't like to communicate. They could see you and they may not even know that you're in the room because they're not even looking. They may not even respond. They don't respond to their name. Sometimes you have to prompt them. If they don't have language, they can't socialize and communicate with others. So that language piece is critical because that language piece needs to be dealt with in order for them to develop the socialization skills. Then what things parents can do with autistic children to develop their social skills and communication? You know, some of the things that parents can do is the constant interaction. You know, now there's so much social media, there's so many electronics that parents are constantly going to the electronics for. Here's my babysitter here. I got to cook right now here. Do that here. Look on the phone. And, you know, there's no interaction on a iPad or a cell phone and the child. The child is just responding to pointing and, you know, they're not required to talk back. What parents need to do is release the iPads, release the iPhones, release all of the social, even TV. And they need to sit down and interact more with the children to teach them social skills. 
But a lot of parents these days don't have social skills. So it's hard for them to teach a skill that they themselves don't have. But they really need to interact with the children more. And I find that a lot of parents do not interact with the children. They don't have those conversations with the children. You know, and they don't model. That's one of the things that they don't do. So I tell my parents, you know, you have to prompt them. You have to, you know, you show pictures. No matter if the child is not talking, you still show pictures. You expose them. You expose them to things in the environment. You make those connections. So if you're showing them an apple in a picture, you show them an apple from the kitchen. If you're showing them a chair from a picture, you show them a chair is what they sit on. So you have to make there, you have to involve, you have to make it real and bring it to life for them. So anything they see in books and pictures, just bring it to life and they're constantly reminded within their environment. Yeah, I like that poem you mentioned about you can give what you don't have, it, you know, about the parents, about that social skills. That parent don't have it, you know, <laughs> what can do with her son or with her daughter. Right. I like that point a lot. How having an autistic child in the home impacts the family? From my observation, I noticed that depending on the culture, but depending on the family dynamics, when there is a mother and father in the home, a lot of families now have the mother, the father, the grandparents that's living in the home. So you get the grandparents saying nothing's wrong with the child. Just leave him alone. He's going to grow out of it. You get the father saying, he's going to be all right. He don't need those services. You get the mother stressed out, very emotional. Mm -hmm. Just don't know which way to turn, but know that something's wrong because it's a mother's instinct to know that something is wrong with their child. So what tends to happen is, The mother focuses a lot on making sure my child is okay, that everything else gets neglected. And a lot of times the husbands feel neglected. So I've seen where the relationships where the husband or boyfriend end up leaving, it causes a lot of relationship issues. I remember one time the family was in such denial that this mother wanted this child to get services so bad because the mother knew that she actually had to go to somebody else's house and have the therapist go to someone else's house for her to be able to get her child services because the family was totally against it. I remember having a child where the family was so against it, they put so much pressure on the mother that the mother just ended up leaving. She left the family, really? she left the children, she just left. She couldn't take him. <gasps> A lot of pressure. It creates a lot of problems in the family. A lot. Yeah. It's really hard. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, some parents accept. Other parents, you know, take time. But wow. Yeah. And then when you have that pressure of your in-laws and, you know, oh, it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's true. Dr. Johnson, on the other hand, on the school stage, how do schools in New York help autistic children, what are the benefits? The one of the things I do commend New York State, New York City for is the amount of services they provide children with. I do believe that New York State, New York City provide children with the most services possible because here 
the students get the home services so they can get up to 20, between 20 and 40 hours of services. They can go into schools when they turn two, so they can go into what's called an EI school and they're in school and they're getting this therapy and they, you know, they're taking the bus and they're getting their therapy at school and then they can also get therapy at home. And then when they turn three, they go into CPSE schools. So they, they're there and they build them and they continue to give them the services they need if they still require. And then they continue to provide them with support all the way through till they turn 21. And I think that New York has been really, the schools, they do pull out, push in for speech services if they need. A lot of times when, as the children get older, they're more embarrassed about being pulled out of the room. So you can ask for accommodations for you to push in to the classroom. And when they're pushing into the classroom, the therapists are pushing into the classroom. They're not just sitting with the child and isolating the child. They're sitting at a table like it's circle time. And they're mm-hmm. interacting with everyone at the table that makes the children feel comfortable. They don't feel isolated. They don't feel different. I truly commend New York City and New York State for if the services are being implemented right, I think New York City, New York State does a very good job at accommodating children with special needs, children with autism. They do an excellent job. Yes, it's incredible. It's really nice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And Dr. Johnson, a question in that line. Science Day COVID-19 pandemic began until now. How have services for children, adolescents, and adults with special needs been affected? Children, um, since COVID-19, it has really been a game changer, and it has been a game changer for everyone. And for the most part, my experience has been that most people that I've been in contact with, they've acclimated and they've embraced this new normal. And the parents now are doing telehealth and a lot of the therapy is online and, you know, Zoom or there are different platforms that therapists are using. Some parents are super overwhelmed. I find (laughs) the parents that are overwhelmed by it are the parents that don't work with their children when the therapist is in the home. So they're the ones that are affected the most because they look at when you come into their home, they look at that time as going to wash clothes, going to cook dinner, going to take a nap. They don't spend that time with you, with their child. Whereas if you're in the home, if the parents are working with you when you're there, then they have not had, for them, the teletherapy has not been a problem for them. In terms of the adolescents and adults, I think it's been a bit of a struggle for them because they're used to, when you have special needs, they're used to having like adult daycares and places that they can go and they have people take them on trips. So they're used to doing a lot of outside activities. And since COVID-19, that has impacted their ability to be able to go out and do things. So they've had to keep them apart. They've had to keep them separated. So on top of having disabilities, they're also away from their families and not able to interact. So it has definitely impacted the adolescent adult population a lot more than it's really impacted the the babies or the um, children between, I would say, 15 months to five years old. Because, you know, the younger the children, 
they usually are able to adapt more so than adults. So for them, it hasn't really been a game changer. It just now requires more of the parents or more of the adult in the home. So the way that children are affected is based on the way the parents respond to it. Mm -hmm. So you know how they say it's not really what happens to you in your life. It's how you respond to what happens. So parents could make it absolutely, they can make it seamless, honestly. So I just feel like for the older people, it, it had a much greater impact. And for people that never really worked with their children, it had a much greater impact. For the younger people, not so much. Yes, the children adapt really quickly. <laughs> It's more easy. <laughs> yeah, they adapt quick. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. What do teachers and day paraprofessionals need to know in order to help an autistic child in a classroom? Well, again, we'll go back to what I said in the beginning. There's no perfect way. There's no cookie cutter way. There's no one size fits most. But I think the best way, the one thing that paraprofessionals and teachers should know is how to address the behaviors that the children exhibit. And Addressing the behavior is the first layer of removing the barrier to being impactful when it comes to working with children with autism. What is that behavior? That behavior could range from anything, but it's whether they have, they don't want to sit down. So you can't get them to sit down. If you can't get them to sit down, you can't teach them. If you can't get them to give eye contact, they're not really understanding you. So it's a, such a broad range of things that can impact the children's ability to learn and the way that the paraprofessionals and the teachers respond to it. What they need to know is identifying the behavior is key. Identifying the antecedent before the behavior is key because what triggered the behavior? Because children don't act the same way all day long. There's something that's triggering the behavior. And then what was the consequence of the behavior? So knowing those things, if you know that something is going to trigger the behavior of a child, you're going to be more reluctant to exposing that child to that. So then you know that one of the things that I find to be effective is preparing the child for yourself. For instance, if lunch is a trigger for the child, you know, we're going to be going to lunch in 15 minutes. So I just want you to get prepared and you know when we go into the lunchroom, we wash our hands, we sit at our table, we sit nicely. So preparing them. And then as you continue to say, okay, so you know, we have 10 more minutes, we're going to be headed toward the lunchroom. We have five more minutes, we're going to be headed toward the lunchroom. What works is preparing them. So if you just say, okay, guys, let's go to lunch, that's a trigger for them because you just took them out of whatever it was that they were doing. And now they don't know what to do or how to respond to it. Knowing how to prepare them is very effective. So what teachers and paraprofessionals really need to be able to do is identify the behaviors, identify the triggers, and then respond to it accordingly. Yes. So there's no real way of saying because there's no two autistic children in the world that are the same. Yes, it's true. Everybody's different. <laughs> they're, all, they're all different. And that's what people don't realize. They're all different. But the behaviors to me are the one things that it doesn't have to be negative behaviors. It could be good or bad behaviors. You know, a good 
behavior could be simply flapping. So what do we do with the flap? And we redirect it because that's an excitement. Like I'm happy. Yay. So I'm flapping because I don't know to clap. Redirect that behavior by taking their hands and modeling clapping. Say happy. When I say behaviors, the behaviors don't necessarily have to be negative behaviors. They're good behaviors as well. It's just that they have to know how to respond to the behavior at the time. And once they learn how to respond to the behavior at the time, say something worked one time, the next time it didn't work. So we won't do that again. It didn't work the first time. So we know not to use that the next time. So knowing the behaviors and it's trial and error. Simple as that. It's trial and error. Yes, it's correct. It's true, Tanya. It's just like typical developing children. It's trial and error. There's no really true way of dealing with the behaviors of children except in that moment, in the classroom, dealing with children. There's no training for going into the classroom. The training is the paperwork. But when you go in that classroom, you know that whatever it is that you learned in college, you will very likely not see it applied in in the classroom. (laughs) Yeah. Dr. Johnson, recommendations and or comments that you want to give us? Some recommendations is that having the conversations early on, I think for a lot of children miss the mark because parents are in denial. And I think that having more social groups, having just conversations around autism, having conversations around special needs and making it more a norm because it really is. But you have so many families that I don't want my child to have a diagnosis, but it's such a norm now. It's almost like COVID. Like, is that normal? Mm -hmm. But you have so many parents, so many families that are in denial. And I think there needs to be a lot more platforms, a lot more conversations around autism, a lot more exposure to people having that information. I remember when I was a principal and I had a parent, her son was getting ready to do the third grade. He was getting ready to do the third grade a third time. And I had to say to her, I said, listen, I had a whole conversation with her and I had to be real and say, my nephew has an IEP. And I think that when you have those conversations, it comes from a place that people respect, they understand and they receive it. And then it's taken differently. And she ended up, after having that conversation with me, she ended up having her son evaluated and we were able to put him in a fifth grade classroom in special education. But, you know, because when children are placed in the wrong place, just because you're keeping them in third grade, because academically that's where they are, their hormones are changing. So there's this social, emotional, and academic disconnect here. So you can't keep them in one place when they're growing up and because there's a clear disconnect. And what happens is their hormones are out of whack and they're sitting there because they got fifth grade hormones, but they're sitting there still with little babies, basically third grade. And then you're going to start to see behaviors. They're going to start acting out because they feel like they're in the wrong place they're going to be bigger than the other children. So parents look at things and they don't realize that it's a bigger picture 
than what you think or how you feel as a parent. It's not about you. It's about the child. And that's what we need to do as parents, as leaders, is we need to make the children important because they are the most important. And that's where we fail. We don't make children the most important. We don't hear their voice. We think about ourselves. We think about how it's going to make us look. We think about how it's going to make us feel. And we're we're never really thinking with the child in mind. And my advice is to start as leaders, as educators, as parents. We always say that we're in this field for the children. I don't see it as much as I should. And I just recommend that we really stand behind that quote that we're in it for the children and it takes a village to raise a child. And we should not be embarrassed if our children have disabilities because even children with disabilities have abilities and we need to stop looking at the dis. And I always refer to children as children with differences, not children with disabilities, because I feel like just because they're different don't mean that they're less than typically developing children because they're very smart. They're very intelligent. They just have very different ways of how they think and process information and how they do things. And my advice is for us to look at the abilities of children and have more conversations around autism and special needs or students with differences. Wow. I love this interview, Tanya. Thank you, Barbara. I love your questions. Wonderful. Wow. Thank you very much for your time and your valuable information. It's amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Barbara. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to have this conversation about something that I'm so passionate about. Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. I invite you to my website, barbaraflores.info, where you will find valuable information, the link to the podcast and YouTube channel, and on my social networks, so that you are aware of everything that is happening with Dr. Barbara Flores. Barbara Flores.